Take your Bibles and let's go to the book of Colossians, chapter number one. And um, we're looking forward to moving through the book of Colossians together. We are not going at breakneck speed by any means, um, but we are going to move through this book together and uh, a passage at a time. If you found your place there in Colossians, I'm not going to have you stand. We've done that at the beginning of the service. Uh, But we are going to read together a little portion of this scripture where our text is found this morning. Primarily, we'd be focused on chapter 1, verses 3 through 5 this morning. Uh, But if we could, let's read down through verse number 8, beginning in verse 1. We'll read those first eight verses together. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you. As indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you have learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Would you join me in prayer this morning? Father, we bow our heads again to pray, and and what I... I'm conscious of the fact that we do this often in a service. And though I do not regret praying often in a service, I do want to caution my own heart to not allow it to become just another filler portion of the service. Where we say a quick prayer and we move on. But Father, this morning we are needy people as we are every Sunday when we come here. Father, nobody here needs to hear from a man. Everybody here needs to hear from you. Father, we understand that we are not sufficient for these things. So, Father, we ask you through your Holy Spirit to be our sufficiency. Give us what we stand in need of this morning. Teach us what we don't know. Help us to see what we can't see. Help us to hear what our ears have been deadened to. And Lord, I pray that you would light a fire in our soul. Help us to take action on what we know we should take action on. We'll praise you for your mercy and your grace that are evident to us this morning. In Jesus' precious name, amen. As the word of God is preached week in and week out, we always want to make sure that we're not coming to hear a message but we're coming to hear the Word of God. Never do we want somebody to walk away and say, man, what a sermon. Rather, we'd let them walk away and say, man, what a book. Never do we want them to come and say, man, what a preacher. But rather, what a Savior. That'd be always the case. And let me, let me caution us that every time that the Word of God is opened, that our ears be tuned. And they'd be ready to receive what God is teaching us because His Word will not and does not return void. It will accomplish what it came to do. And may that always be the case in our life. You know, you can often, and I as a pastor am preaching now for 
many, many years and preaching week after week for many years. You can come to a text of Scripture and you can think when you start the week, please don't judge me too harsh, but what in the world are we going to preach out of this passage? I don't see anything really that obvious. I mean, it all seems kind of like boilerplate stuff. We came back, from, the ladies were gone for ladies' retreat, and I think it was Allie who made the comment. And I, she said, well, how did, how did Colossians go this morning, Dad? And I'm like, we covered verse 1. And I quoted it for her, and she goes, what did you preach on out of that? And I can, I can echo that sentiment a lot of times when I open the text to begin with. What are we going to preach on out of this? But it is interesting that the longer that you look into the Scripture and you begin to ask the questions of the text of what is it we're trying to learn, how it blossoms in the sunlight of the Spirit of God and shows us what we need, and there's fruit for our soul, there's food for our belly from the Word of God. And may that be where we look to. We don't look to sermonizing to be the answer, but we look to the Word of God to be the answer. I'm reminded of the preacher who preached for many years, you know, and he had just been in ministry for 30, 40 years now, and uh, after preaching for all this time, uh, his wife, he found a box under the bed that he had never known before, and he was intrigued by the box, and he actually broke the little latch on it to open it up because curiosity got the best of him, and when he opened the box, there was three hard-boiled eggs in the box and $10,000 in cash, and he was like, what in the world is in this box? Why is this here? So he sat down on the kitchen table. He goes, my wife's going to have some explaining to do. What's this money? I didn't know any of this was here. And so his wife comes home, and she's like, oh, you found that. And he said, yeah, I did. He said, I, I'm just curious what this is. And she said, well, you know, I sit every Sunday and listen to you preach. And every time you preached a bad sermon, I boiled an egg and put it in that box. And he goes, oh, well, I mean, almost 40 years now. Just three eggs. She said, well, every time I got a dozen, I sold them. <laughs> so, so, so let's, maybe this Sunday will not be a boiled egg Sunday. I'll let you know next week. But the, uh, but as we are turn to the text this morning, we're reminded of Paul's grace-filled greeting that we looked at in the last two weeks, how his heart was move with affection toward a group of people that he's never met face to face. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that connected him with them. It was their love for the Lord Jesus Christ that causes him to give thanks. And we're going to see that in a moment. This grace that he offers them, he said, grace and peace to you. Grace is the foundation of our peace. You cannot have peace unless you have the grace of God. That outside the grace of God, there is no peace. So then we walk into what could be called the gospel triad or triad of, of the, the three prongs to gospel. And some even say it's Paul's shorthand for gospel. And what are those three words we're going to look at this morning is faith, love, hope. Or the other order might be faith, hope, love. And we see these orders showing up in all different places in scripture. Even our Lord speaks of them and though he may not use the exact words, the whole concepts are there in his teaching as he walks through a faith and what we have hope and expectation of and then love. These are the fundamental elements of the gospel. As a matter of fact, he tells us in verse number six, he said, you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. He said, you've, you've got this settled in your heart. In verse number five, he said, this is what you've heard before in the word of the truth. What is it? The gospel. The gospel. And so the gospel is on display in these three words, grace, 
hope true. Now, I want to take just a moment and break down the passage that we're looking at in verses 3 through 5, and we'll be actually 3 through 5a this morning. But in these passages of Scripture, we see, first off, thanks being given, faith being praised, love being admonished, and then uh, hope being encouraged. All of these things is what Paul is talking about, is thanksgiving for faith and love because of hope. And so the, the, the flow of this is it is thanks to the Father when we pray for you. He is thanking God for their faith and love. Faith is a known faith. It is a faith that has, has uh, people have heard about it outside of Colossae. It has traveled. The news of this has traveled. It was faith in Christ. It was love for all the saints. It was an active faith, love. It was not a passive thing. It was not just an emotional thing. It was an active love, a love that went to action. And then we see the last line here in verse number five, because of the hope laid up for you. And the writing here would have us to believe that faith and love are produced because of hope. And so I, I want you, if I could just for a moment, to look at this word hope. Uh, this word hope is an energizing hope by our text. It's a world, it's another world hope because he said it is laid up for you in heaven. And so this is a hope that is beyond this realm, it's beyond this world, and it's an energizing love. It's the motive for faith and love. Now, how is it that hope of tomorrow is energizing faith and love? Does that hope, does it work that way? And so we're going to look at that. If you were to take these four things, thanksgiving, faith, love, hope, sum them all up, put an addition sign next to them, you get the bottom and it's the gospel. Faith, hope, love. So let's look at the word thanks. Paul says we always thank God, the Father. We always thank God. This is something Paul is constantly doing, the always here connected to the giving thanks, not to the praying. The idea is that he's not always praying, but when he prays, he always gives thanks. That he is praying for them, and as he prays for them, he gives thanks for them. We see Paul affirming these saints and continuing to connect them to the gospel. He is not expressing thanks for what they had done for him. Paul is not writing them and saying, hey, you know, hey, thanks for the special offering you sent to me, or thanks for meeting my need while I was in prison here. But he's saying, hey, I want to thank God for the faith and the love that I see evident in you and the hope that you have because of the hope you have uh, that is laid up for you in heaven. This thanks is flowing to God for the work of the gospel and in others. Now, I want you to notice this. When we pray for you, not if we pray for you, he is praying for them, and he is praying for them on a regular basis, and he is doing so intentionally. And we'll, we'll say more about this prayer that Paul prays for them when we get to verse number 9 of our text. But Paul is not saying, well, if I pray for you, but when I pray for you. Paul is intentional about praying for them. Now, I, I would just say just for a moment here this morning, if we could, that our prayer for one another should be intentional. That it ought to be, and I, I'm, I'm 100% for us having a prayer list, and I, I keep a prayer list that I take with me, and I pray through that prayer list on a regular basis, and uh, I pray for many of you by name on a regular basis. If you come and ask me to pray for something, I do my best to write it down so I can remember to pray for it. But I found also it's good that when someone's name comes to my mind, I pray for them. That as I'm going through the day, and the, the Spirit of God may lay someone's name on my heart, I pray for them. And, and let, me, let me say this too, when we are praying for one another, let's set aside the false humility that somehow or another we don't want to tell people we're praying for them. 
I think there's a false humility in that. How many of you this morning have something you need prayed for? How many of you got issues? You got issues? All right. Okay, if, if you saw somebody not raising their hand, you don't have to pray for them. They don't have any issues. They got it all cared for. But the rest of us have issues, right? How many of you are upset if somebody, any, okay, let's see, how many of you are okay with people praying for you? You're okay with that, all right? So everybody's good with one another praying for you, and everybody here will admit that people, that we want, that we need prayer. So let's just put it aside, and when somebody comes to our heart, let's pray for them and say, hey, I want you to know I prayed for you. I'm caring about you. Paul is always writing to these churches saying, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. And it was not this thing of false humility somehow to, well, I don't want people to, uh, to think I'm being super spiritual. Well, if you're still concerned about what people think, then you're still concerned about what people think. So set it aside and love your brother and sister by praying for them and then saying to pray for them. Now, I was pointed out after the first service that we can use this in a bit disingenuous way, can we not? Well, I'm going to pray for you. <laughs> That's not what I'm talking about, all right? <laughs> All right, that's, that's not the heart behind that, all right? Now, I think there can be a flippancy with that, but let's not be flippant about it either. Let's call with a heart of affection, and Paul is saying, hey, I thank God for you when I pray for you. I jokingly said last week that there are people that we might think of and pray for, but we don't thank God for. Let it be that we do thank God for those that we pray for and see them in their need and thank God for his answer. The tone Paul continues is a heartfelt family tone that is for people he did not know but had only heard of. Now, you might stand back and say, well, it's easy for him to thank God for them and, and to be pleased with them because he didn't have to live with them. If you had to live with the people I did, you wouldn't thank God for them. That's not it at all because Paul, it may be true that it may be easier to love people at a distance. Somebody jokingly said to me, you look better on camera, and I'm like, hey, you know, it is what it is, all right? So they, were, they had been away, and now they're back, and it looked better on camera. I think most people look better at a distance, right? Uh, but the reality, Paul is lovingly saying, you love one another inside your group. And I'm commending you for your love for one another. I'm commending you for dealing with one another. And loving people is not about finding perfect people to love, but it's loving imperfect people. And Paul is commending them for their love. I thought this morning, does the evidence of the gospel in my life cause anyone else to give thanks to God because of me? Do we look around and say, is there, is there evidence of what Jesus is doing in me that would cause someone to say thank God for what he's doing in that person? When we look at our children, when we look at our, our families, when we look at our church as a whole, can the world outside this church say, wow, I don't know what's going on there, but that church, there's something happening inside that church. Paul is commending them. I wonder, would anyone hear of our faith and love outside the doors of our church? Faith. So we see the first word here is Paul is giving thanks for them. He is praying for them, and we'll come back and say more about praying for one another and what Paul's, the subjects of his prayers are. But now I turn to the phrase here, faith, and he says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. He said, we've heard of this. Hebrews 11 tells me that, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Faith is the ground on which we hope. It is the basis of our hope. Now, when we think of faith, 
Uh, this, the news of their faith had reached out to Paul and had traveled from Epaphras back to where Paul was. And very likely Epaphras was this man that was going back and forth to Colossae while Paul was there and has brought the message now to Paul in Rome of what was happening in this church. And he's communicating that these people, they have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They are settled in him. This is not faith in faith. This is not just some mystical power that we conjure up by getting ourselves into an emotional state, but it is faith in something. It is faith in someone. And and I I think if we're not careful, we can let uh, so much of this uh, cultural Christianity develop in it. And if you let me just for a moment to vent, one of my problems with Hollywood trying to adapt Christian stories is that we make faith in faith the issue. Well, I believe Jesus is God, but why? Why does it matter that he's God? Because if you've never confessed that you're a sinner, deserving a Christless hell, and understanding that he is the only Savior, then faith in God is no more valuable than faith in that chair. It's empty. It has no grounding. It has no foundation. And we, we, we preach almost an empty gospel. But the gospel is the fact that you were a sinner deserving God's judgment. And Jesus was the Savior who came uh, of his own accord and by the will of his Father. And he laid down his life for our sins. He was buried. He rose again the third day. And he ever lives to intercede for us. And one day he is coming back to claim his purchased possession. That's the faith that we have when we say, I have faith in Christ. I'm resting in him and him alone. Faith is always rooted in an object. Faith is only as good as the object that it rests upon. It's only as good as that. Well, pastor, I've just really lost faith in people. Well, that's not surprising. People will fail you. Well, I've just lost faith in preachers. Well, preachers will fail you. Well, I've just lost faith in churches. Churches will fail you. But I can promise you this morning that Jesus Christ never fails. Our faith has found a resting place. We sing that song over and over again. And it is so true that it rests in Jesus Christ alone. John G. Patton, a missionary to the Hebrides Islands, was translating the word into their language. And he was trying to find the word for believe. How do we bring this word in? And he finally landed upon a word that literally means to lean your whole weight upon that we rest fully upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not hedging our bets. We're not looking for a better option. We're not holding out to see if something better comes tomorrow. We're not diversifying our faith. We rest in him alone. This is what the saints at Colossae had done, and Paul is praising God for their faith. The thanksgiving is going to God on their behalf, and he is glorifying God, and the more that people hear of our faith and the work that is being done in us, the more that God gets glory for what he's doing in us. And that's what Paul is commending them before. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. There's no other place to stand. So faith points us back to what God has done. This is what God has done. He did die for our sins. He was buried. He was crucified, buried, risen. And then he is coming again. And so we see what he has done points us to what he will do. Faith is what he has in what he has done and hope in what he will do. Hope is in the future. It points us forward. 
Faith points us back to what God has done and points us forward to what Christ will do. That is hope. These both are the grounds and the security for our love. And what is love? Love is faith in action. It's faith with work boots on. It's James 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. It's James walking it out. Don't tell me you have faith. Show me you have faith. It's that I believe and so therefore I have spoken. I believe and so therefore I take action. Faith always moves me to love. Love is this unconditional love. Paul understood and expected that faith would produce love in the life of the believers. Love is faith in action, not a sentimental feeling. Orthodoxy without love is a questionable faith. You know, you can have all of your doctrine lined up right and be more doctrinally correct than anybody else in the room, but if you don't have a love for the people around you, you're missing the point of your doctrine. Our doctrine is not having its purpose. Now, don't hear me wrong this morning. I'm not saying get rid of your doctrine. I'm saying let it be something that makes a difference on the inside of us, not something that just makes a difference in our head. And we get everything lined up. Mark Twain said a person like that is a good man in the worst sort of way. He's a great guy in the worst sort of way. Just don't want to be around him. Paul goes on to say, he said, I want to thank God for your faith in Christ and your love for all the saints. For all the saints. This is a proactive love. It's not a selective love. As a matter of fact, I kind of see Paul not with a little squirt gun walking around, but a super soaker just spraying everybody he comes in contact with. I think that's what the church of Colossae was about. It wasn't looking for somebody to target with love, but he was loving all the saints. And again, the saints are those who are believers, not special group of people. Those who are in faith, who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, are a part of the saints. It's proactive. This morning, if there are people... Or saints, let me say it this way, we cannot love, we must check our faith. We must check our faith. Do we not believe that God loved us? How many of you this morning believe you, you, you can say amen to the fact God loves you? And you know that he loves you. You're settled in your heart that he believes you. And that is what our faith rests on this morning is that he loved me. And and as a aside this morning, the most important thing in the Christian life is not to prove to God you love him. The most important thing is to be thoroughly convinced that God loves you. Here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son. It is his love for us that he has poured out and demonstrated. And I find so many Christians are wondering, does God really love me? And we're living with this whole, man, i got to do the right thing so God will love me more. You can't do anything to get God to love you more. You can't do anything to get God to love you more. And by the way, you can't do anything to stop him from loving you now. If that could ever get in our head, I think we could run free. That we're settled in who he is. That he is the one. My faith is resting in who he is, not what I am. And if I'm convinced this morning that God loved me, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Not just a select few of my friends, but a love that goes to all the saints. How many of you got anybody that rubs you the wrong way? You don't have to point at them, all right? Don't do that, all right? I got wives doing this, you know, pointing at their husband. 
But that's not what we want. We have people that rub us the wrong way. We don't get along with everybody equally. Let me say this. Whether or not I, 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 we connect and we click together in personality doesn't negate the responsibility of me loving the saints. And we're going to look at what it looks like to love one another. But this is what Paul is saying is so beautiful about this early church. Because what you have is you have people that don't click. Sitting in the church that culture has separated, that, that politics has separated, and now they sit together in this church and you have barbarian and Scythian, slave and free, male and female, Jew and Greek, learned and ignorant, all sit at the same table and they came through the same broken body in the same shed blood. And so there's unity in this moment of understanding that you came to the cross the same way I came to the cross. And here's the thing, if God could forgive me, then I must believe he can forgive you. And this is where unforgiveness and bitterness is such a denial of the gospel. And hear me clear, unforgiveness and bitterness, church, is a denial of the gospel. Unforgiveness and bitterness is a denial of the gospel. Because what does the gospel tell us? The debt has been paid. And when I am holding unforgiveness, I am asking you to pay it again. Why would I try to punish you for what he's already paid for? I can lay it down because of what Christ has done. And this is the love that he's talking about. Not a pettiness, not a bitterness. The church knows nothing of caste systems. The church knows nothing of a hierarchy. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. It's not pastors up here and deacons here and people down here, but every person here holds a role for the glory of God, and every person came in through the foot of the cross. Nobody came in a different way. And this morning, we as a church, we take admonition from Paul looking at this church and say, man, I'm so thankful for your love for all the saints. Church knows no cliques. We fall in this trap of pulling ourselves into tight groups when we take our eyes off the gospel, I mean, we treat love as nothing but a feeling. So what is love? Well, let's let the scripture speak. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 13 is probably the most famous passage of scripture on love. We read it at weddings, though it's not written to married couples or any of that. And I gave this aside for the 9 o'clock so you don't feel shortchanged. I'll give you this aside. It's not in my notes. I won't charge you extra. So, um... Marriage, the foundation of marriage is not love. I'm going to say that again and let it sit. The foundation of marriage is not love. Marriage is a foundation for love. Marriage is the foundation for love. Show me one place in the Bible where the Bible says, fiancés love your fiancé. No. Husbands love your wives. Love is an action. And marriage is the foundation for it. We've bought into this lie of Hollywood that says some ethereal feeling that is stirring of some hormones because someone is pretty or attractive and they stir something in when we come in contact with one another is a far greater basis and foundation for joining someone in marriage. And somehow or another, God's purpose, which says you and I are going to join together and holy covenant for the purpose of procreation and discipleship of who God puts into our home is a far less foundation than the ethereal feeling that Hollywood has sold us. 
And you say, well, pastor, that's not very romantic. And I, I have a feeling that something that lasts for 60 years on a solid foundation is far more romantic than what we call romance today. Because it's not the foundation. Commitment to God and faith in God are the foundation of marriage. And love flows out of it. Love always flows out of it. So, back to the sermon. What is love? Well, Paul says it this way when he writes to the church at Corinth. Love is patient, long-spirited. It puts up with. It's kind. It's meeting the needs of others. Love does not envy. It doesn't desire to have what others have and is not upset when it sees others have it. It doesn't boast or brag of its possessions or accomplishments. Love is not arrogant. Love is not rude. This would be speaking in a way that draws attention to others at the expense of, your, of themselves. I must confess, this one hits home to me. It does not sis, insist on its own way. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. Be so touchy and holding on to grudges. Don't hold on to things against others and plot to repay those who have offended you. I don't know about you, but when I have a narrative going on in my head and I start building an argument against somebody who I think has done me wrong, I'm more eloquent than Churchill and Shakespeare put together. I can put it together and write it up in my mind and take them apart and tell you why they did it. And go at it in my own heart and mind, demonstrating there's not love there. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. We rejoice when our enemies fall. We rejoice when our brothers and sisters fall. But rather it rejoices in truth wife is so good to remind me on a regular basis when I will, uh, let's put it in Christian terms, vent to her. You guys all look at me very piously right now like you never vent. Um, but when I vent or I go on a rant, she'll often say to me, well, let's remind ourselves what's true. And what is true about the person who ticked us off? What's true about the person who has us frustrated well, it's the same thing that's true about me. They're a sinner in need of a Savior, and we both came through the foot of the cross. And in that moment, very little holds any weight in my venting anymore. Because truth is what love pursues. It is truth. Love bears all things. Not most things, all things. Takes it in stride without writing off the one who has wronged you. He believes all things. What does it mean to believe all things? He doesn't jump to conclusions on the intentions and motives of others. Let me challenge us this morning. When we think we know the motives of someone else, we are walking dangerously close to the enemy's territory. 
You remember one time maybe when Satan said, I know why Job serves you. Oh, do you, Satan? Do you really know his motives and intentions? Let's see if you do. And Satan was proven wrong. We don't know the heart of another. Dare we say we don't know our own heart. The love believes all things. Hopes all things. Holds out judgment till the facts are in. Love endures all things. Never is burnt out by believing in people. It just keeps enduring. Why? How, how is this love? And he says in the very last one, love never ends. There's no power that can overcome this godly charity because it's not human charity. It's not human love because every time I find myself coming to the end of my ability to love someone, when I go to the foot of the cross, I find there is a fresh supply of love again. And that our cups are full to overflowing because we have been loved beyond comprehension and we can pour out that love, never-ending supply because the supply is not dependent upon me. And so we go back to him again and again. One of the dangers for you and me both is to think that somehow or another by preaching this that we've lived this. How many times we've come short of loving as Christ would call us to love. This love cannot originate with us or be perpetuated by us, but is a love that must be motivated by the love of Christ. We do not rest our faith upon Christ. We will not love like Christ. And so it brings us to hope. Hope is the expectation of the future reward and relief that's coming. Let me understand this broken world is coming to an end. That this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The expectation of future reward and relief. And it's not an expectation based upon what we've accomplished, but what he's done. And I love this. Look, if you would, in this text when he says, Because I heard of your faith in Lord Jesus, the love you have for the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. He gives us a, a location that is laid up in heaven. The idea here, it, it literally you could take the words to mean it's been put aside for you with your name on it. That in heaven, all that is promised me in salvation has been reserved for me. And it's mine. And one day I'm going to realize that and hold on to it. Paul, Peter describes this blessed hope when he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Born again to what? To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. This is our hope. This is what we're looking forward to. And Paul, and we read in the Corinthians a minute ago, he said, now abides faith, hope, love. But the greatest of these, love. Why? Why the greatest of these be love? You see, hope is about a future expectation, a coming kingdom, a coming reward, a coming right being made wrong, a confident expectation that anchors our soul, and we can hold this world more loosely when we hope and love more freely when we hope. So why is love the greatest of these? Because everything that I have believed one day will be sight. I'm going to see Jesus face to face. 
I believe I'm going to embrace my Savior one day. And I'll know what it was like with the Apostle John to lay my head on his shoulder. And we will see him face to face. And everything that we've hoped for, all of the sickness and pain and and death that we're hoping one day will be gone, will be done away, and hope will be realized. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And so faith will be realized. Hope will be realized. And the only thing left is love. Because the relationship that both of those communicate will remain. And so love is the outworking of faith. And so what do we have? We have faith and hope. And these two anchors allow me to love freely. When I know that there's a reward laid up for me, why would I be stingy with what I have here? With my time, with my resources, none of those things could be held on to dearly. But because of hope, Paul is speaking then of an active growing faith that produces love. He's not looking at a static set of beliefs or an inactive faith. Hope is not here the source of faith and love, but it is the perpetuator of faith and love. Hope perpetuates it. So here I am in faith. I accepted Christ. I understood I was a sinner. I was called by his marvelous grace into the light. And that faith within me produces love. And I begin to act out that love. And then I realize that all of this that I've been believing has a future expectation of reward. And that anchors me. But what it does is when I see the hope that is coming, it returns me back to my faith and strengthens my faith, which then produces more love, which points me to hope, which which goes back and strengthens my faith, which produces more love, which points me to hope. And it's the cycle of the gospel in my life because I can't get anywhere without going back to the fact that I'm a sinner that deserves hell. But look what Jesus did for me. And now love comes out because I understood it was not from me. And then I'm anchored in my hope again and I go back to faith. And so faith, hope, love. These three. So in conclusion this morning, we've heard of your faith, Paul said. Your faith was in Christ. We've heard of your love. Your love was for all the saints. Because of the hope, you have a reserved reward waiting for you. This is all wrapped up in the gospel. So this morning, we have a work that's happened before us. That's faith. We believe a work is going to happen after us. That's what we hope in. And we believe there's a work that can be done through us. And that's love that we live it out today, one day at a time, one person at a time. You see, love is faith in action, motivated by the hope that is coming. How many believe God has done great things in the past? Say amen. How many believe that God can do great things in the future? How many believe God can use you to do it? I remind you of the fellow with the wheelbarrow on the tightrope. He walked across the tightrope with the wheelbarrow, came back across, everybody cheered for him. Because how many believe I can do it with somebody in the wheelbarrow? Everybody cheered for him. Yeah, I believe you can do it. And he goes, who wants to get in the wheelbarrow? And when we step out and begin to love freely, we're getting in the wheelbarrow. The amazing thing is that God invites us into being a part of that. And we get to partner with him. Let's pray together this this morning. Father, 
We ask you to add your blessing to what has been said this morning. Lord, I pray, Father, that um, you would do the work that needs to happen in my heart. Father, create a loving heart within us. And Lord, that is not done on our own efforts. Lord, it is done when we stay long at the foot of the cross. We see you for who you are and see ourselves for who we are. Holy Spirit of God, I pray that you would just remind us of it day in and day out. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, I'm just going to ask you there in the quiet of your seat. I wonder if there's an unforgiveness in your soul, something that God is dealing with you. Don't put it off. Deal with it today. If you're here today and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, let today be the day of salvation. We're here in the auditorium this morning. We're not leaving. I want you to come and talk with me. If you have questions. We'll answer those questions the best we can. Take the time that you need. Father, we ask you now to add your blessing. Work in the hearts of those that you're dealing with now. In the precious name of Jesus, we ask all these things.